Hello, this is Andy McGeady and this is the first episode of the podcast in far too long. I have been moving house, I have been moving newspaper, I have been busy. Um, we talk about George North and concussions, we talk about rooking and rook data, we talk about Six Nations TV broadcasting, we talk about music, we talk about what am I drinking. Um, there's a lot of stuff but we're keeping it short as usual. If you're commuting, if you're doing the ironing, if you're doing the dishes, you're out with the dog. Here we go. 20 minutes of fun. Let's go. So the newspaper move happened. It's... Um New byline photo for the Irish Times, though they're still using a variant of the my Twitter pic, which I'm not sure why, but I don't really care. The main thing is that I'll be writing more regularly there from now on. And yeah, it's a good thing. It's exciting. One of the first pieces I did in this sort of new life with them is um, is a piece on Rook data. Uh, rooking is a, an ever increasing part of the modern game. It used to be in the past that, you know, teams like New Zealand and Scotland were renowned for their rooking. But now... Rooking it almost is the modern game. The set piece is declining, especially the scrum, in terms of the number of them per game. And there's just more and more breakdowns, more and more rooks. And in order to win, you have to be very effective there and you have to be good on both sides of the ball. So when we are getting very, very used to seeing stats like tackles made, tackles missed, carries made, meters made with ball in hand, turnovers won, turnovers lost throws made, the accuracy of the thrower, the amount of throws that someone actually gets to the line at, the amount of steals that someone like Paul O'Connell makes over a campaign. Yeah, we're used to seeing all that. And that's good. That that That's opening up a rise perhaps to something that we didn't see in the past. And it is one aspect of the work right in the field. But just as a simple tackle made doesn't tell us how effective that tackle was, there's all this other side that we don't see either. So... I use data from Prozone. Prozone are one of the big stats companies, just like an Opta, um, but they do something that at the moment Opta don't do for all of their clients, shall we say. Um, they measure this rook activity. Essentially, what we're talking about here is the bit between when the tackle's made and the ball carrier goes down onto the ground and then whatever happens and then someone passes the ball away or picks the ball up and goes, it's that bit. What happens there? And a couple of things happen there, both on a team level and an individual level. On the team level, it's kind of simple. You just go, well, let's count the amount, the number of seconds between when the ball goes down, a rook is formed or the breakdown, you know, that little bit of mystery. And then when the ball comes out again to our team, how quick does that happen? And the magic number is three. That three seconds mark is generally take, accepted as if you get it out three seconds or below, it's quick ball. If it's above that, then it's slow ball, or at least not quick. And analysts will look at this. Companies will look at this to say, look to their to their clients. Um, this is what's happening for this team and the, against these opponents, or this team against the league as a whole. What does this team do in their own ball? How quick are they at recycling? And also, how good are teams at preventing other teams, preventing their opponents from generating quick ball. So that's on the team level. And Ireland in 2014 
Posen also said, were the fastest side in world rugby at generating quick ball. Ireland led, New Zealand were second, Australia were third. That's off the top of my head. I hope it's right. On the individual level, it's a slightly different count, kind of counting, but it's still just counting. Who are the first three players that come to engage with that ruck? That's from both sides of the ball. So again, ball carrier goes in, brought to ground by the tackle, places the ball. Who are the first three players in? And you 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 look at the tape and you see who the players were. You put a tick beside the name. And at the end of the game, you, you just count all those ticks. Say, how many ruck engagements did those guys have? How many did they have on their own ball? How many did they have on the opposition ball? Because different players will have different roles. And then you see how much activity they had around that. Now, I say activity because just like, for example, in the tackle, you can only measure so much. The next stage is quality. How dominant were they in that position? How effective were they? And that's where you go into the next level, which is something that the team's analyst will look at. They will look at their own players. And for every game, for every breakdown, they'll be counting up saying, which guys were effective and which guys were just standing around being rook inspectors. If you want to look at something um, that's quite illustrative, that kind of process, uh, look at some of the stuff that last year the Demented Mo blog did. And then that was taken on a little bit by uh, Murray Kinsler at the score.ie, sorry, now the 42.ie. He did a piece that's worth looking at on last weekend's Ireland versus Italy match. Again, just looking at the, the number of engagements, but also looking at the useful engagements and the, maybe the not so useful engagements. Um, while remembering that sometimes there's a bit that, that really we will never know, which is should they have engaged at all? Like all these things, what do statistics give us? They can give us an ability to tell a little bit of a story about something which at the time we humans aren't very good at picking up unless we're absolutely 100% experts. And I'm not. I'm an ignorant journalist. I dig into this stuff because I find it absolutely fascinating. And I think it tells us stuff which up to now maybe we haven't been able to, to learn by ourselves, apart from depending on certain things like he gets through a lot of unseen work. Yeah, well, maybe we can do better. Um, data like this, I think, is really, really good. How much it adds, you know, to a big screen event like like a Six Nations game, I'm not sure because most of the audience, most of those huge audiences, they're tuning in for entertainment. They want to see their country win. They want to see a great try. They want to see good players do great things. Do they want to get into the minutiae of this? I don't know. Probably not, really. I mean, can you actually pay attention to that if you're watching down the pub with your with your with your dad, with your sister, with your mates? No, not really. So let's give it another home. That could be the internet. It could be newspaper articles. Um, it could be the analysis in a separate show during the week. Um, it could be a perfect place during something like the World Cup, where you could have a magazine show. I don't know. The world is our oyster. We are a broad church. There is room for everybody. That's what makes journalism in 2015 such a wonderful thing so in the first round of the six nations games unfortunately the aftermath much of it was spent talking about concussion couple of incidents, uh, the Rory Best one for Ireland, which thankfully he has come through uh, with apparently no ill effects and he was selected to play against France. 
in the next game for Ireland. Um, but the one that really got people's juices flowing was George North. And I say one because that's a mistake that I think some people have made in interpreting what happened that day. I'm not a medical expert, but it's important to understand the processes that have gone through. There were two incidents. The first one where North got a, a stray boot to the head, completely accidental. It was immediately apparent, even on first time viewing, that something had happened. Something head related had happened. North was brought off to be assessed. They did the five to ten minute que- test, depending on how long it takes. And the doctor said, yes, nothing says you're definitely concussed. Go, go back on. And that's fine. So you can't, from your sofa at home, say that's a concussion. They followed the process correctly. The later one, that's a different one. And that's the one which has caused uproar, probably, yeah, on Friday night, it was uproar, Saturday probably as well. Um, so let's recap. North goes in to a contact scenario. He gets a head knock. He immediately becomes limp, falls to the ground. You can see he's out. Obvious to everybody, yes? And when the video is going around, said everyone, well, how did they leave him on? Well, let's not forget that that video only came to light because I presume it was the BBC producers shoved it up they found the angle and they found that maybe sort of three to five minutes afterwards like that's a long time so first time up it wasn't immediate that had something had happened so the question we must ask is if it was so obvious even that short time later then then how do we fix this in future um the welsh medics say they didn't see it there's no reason to think that they would jeopardize their career by by you know deliberately leaving somebody out there um, the independent match day doctor wasn't in a position to see it. The interesting one, I think, from the future point of view, is that currently the TMO, if they saw that, and this is my understanding based on conversations with well-placed people, the TMO does currently have the power with the existing laws and protocols to do a sort of a check, check, check signal into the referee to say, look, there's something that, w- that we've missed. There's a possible head-related injury. You know, this this lad needs to be assessed. This, could, it, could that be expanded to have someone constantly looking at a replay? I don't know. That's probably something which I would presume uh, World Rugby might be looking at in advance of such a major tournament like the Rugby World Cup, where we are told that they have a lot of these things in place, like the facilities... Um, video facilities everywhere not just to look at the injury mechanism as part of the head examination when they're taken off the field but last in the hype about it might be the fact that well North wasn't selected this week they've said that yes he's been going through the concussion protocols and he seems to be fine he's symptom free because don't forget you like they didn't say he's got no concussion this week when the team was named they just said He's going through the protocols because he has to get through all of the protocols. If you fail at any step, you are back to the start and you start again, which can be very frustrating for the player. And it involves a lot of trust with a player to actually share that with the with the medical personnel. Um, but North is apparently symptom free. But at the end of last season, he had been held out of the Wales against South Africa Autumn International because he'd had a concussion. So Wales are saying, look, he's had another concussion fairly recently. Let's hold, hold him out because... One of the other players coming back this weekend has been Johnny Sexton, who had multiple concussions within a, I suppose, in in a lifespan, a relatively short time. He was held out for 12 weeks and now he's back. So 
that seemed to have been a very, very responsible decision um, by the, the people in charge of that in France Rugby. Am I trying to gloss over this? No. It was shocking. The gap that was identified by what was the BBC viewing figures, um, 7.3 or 8 million, depending on which, which source you have, uh, and I think close to 9 million at peak. All of those people saw George North go into, I believe the appropriate medical term is cervical hypotonia, which to some people they might know it as ragdolling. Everything's gone, no response, he was out. Now, he was back very, very, very short time later, but that sent the signal that, look, this guy has suffered a brain injury, and that means he shouldn't be left out there. So the gap that allowed him to remain out there, that's the thing which people, I would hope right now, are working on trying to fix. And even if it's just a very common sense thing, like make it clear to everybody that the TMO as an official with access to replays and stuff can do the same thing as if you were standing on the pitch down below and say, regardless of medical advice, I've seen what I've seen. I'm satisfied that it's a concussion related incident. I need him off for at least a head injury assessment and maybe even I don't want to see it on the, on the pitch again. The tools are there. Let's make sure they work. And I think let's remember that rugby's in a better place than it was. Uh, there's questions about, is the game getting too impactful? There's a lot of impact-related things that are happening in the game now, particularly around the clear-out. They just sort of say, well, there probably are ways that we don't need this in the game. Um, but... That is the game in 2015. And it's probably better right now, this situation, than American football still finds itself in, where, according to PBS, of all NFL concussions, the reported concussions in the 2014 season, the Miami Dolphins reported zero concussions for the entire season. Make of that what you will. Six Nations Broadcasting and the deals that are around that and the trump card that I suppose Six Nations CEO John Fian has to keep in his back pocket or that's how, that's how he views it. He, the trump card of the satellite broadcasters, the sky to use the, the example that, that's always been there really in this part of the world, um, the BTs as well, keeping the terrestrial broadcasters honest shall we say in terms of how much they'd actually be willing to to bid because if those guys are off the table then naturally enough the terrestrials the rtes the bbc's etc can just say well you know we're not competing with the big boys anymore here's a, here's a low ball offer and and you can understand that the key point that allows six nations and john fian to keep that card in the back pocket is the current designation both in the UK and in Ireland, of Six Nations games as being their listed events, but their deferred listed events. So the listed event can be commonly understood to mean that a game must be shown on live television on a free-to-air broadcaster. A free-to-air broadcaster in the Irish sense, the way it's defined is um, free, obviously, and available to 90% of the population. 
so that rules out anyone that's a paper that's a pay-per-view or subscription-based channel deferred is a different thing deferred means that there must be for example there could be highlights it could be a deferred full match broadcast but that live broadcast which is the bit that everybody's paying for that is not covered under legislation it's different for example than the irish soccer team stuff that is designated differently so should there be a difference who knows but right now that is the situation and there, in, there is a review in ireland going on right now uh, minister alex white the minister for communications there's a review going on and we're not sure when that's going to come out it was announced i think last june and the various submissions from interesting interested parties were supposed to be due in in august and the department wouldn't give me a date but they said look yeah he's reviewing it it'll come in due course but both the irfu and the six nations and european rugby are all very firm on this they want the status quo in terms of that not to shift stuff explicitly to sky but to keep the bidding honest or at least in sort of to get a market rate but it's not that simple because once you go down the road well if someone gives you a huge huge offer well how do you say no the six nations has been there before England's Rugby Football Union, they said back in 1996, well, we're going to go to Sky. We're going to sell our home test to Sky for everything. Six Nations, Autumn Games, everything. And it almost broke the Five Nations as it was then. It almost broke the Championship. There was a time where England were being kicked out. And they they mended their bridges and everything like that, mended their fences. And they were back in again and everyone got on. But there were a few years there where you were getting, you know, paltry audiences for huge huge games which is a real shame and you'd wonder does that affect the the youth of that day who are the superstars of tomorrow if they can't watch the game and remember the six nations they pull in massive audiences you're looking at for a a big england game you're looking at audiences of maybe sort of between seven and eight million and more for the real real big games that come on every couple of years and that's seven or eight million that compares to the biggest imagine the biggest premier league football match of the last few years do you know how much that got that's about 2.9 million now they'll advertise peak viewership but i'm talking about average viewership that's that's a huge difference. That, that's the biggest audience and the tv deal the tv deal that was signed this this week again by sky what was it 10 million they paid per game but that's how much of an audience they're getting now yes there's pub audiences club audiences and they're a little more hard to gauge but when you get down to raw viewership the stuff that that nielsen actually generates the those figures that's what you're looking at so there's a big the six nations pull in enormous viewers and in britain the three countries that make up that island you've got different tv deals scotland and wales are both currently their autumn internationals are signed with the bbc England's different. England are with Sky and they've signed another extension to that and that I think runs till the end of the 2019-2020 season. So all of their autumn internationals are on Sky and that's that's a subscription service. Ireland, as with so many things, um, it's complicated. Ireland have a couple of different deals. The IRFU uh, have sold the domestic, as in the Ireland rights to RTE and they've sold the UK rights to Sky that seems fine until you remember that it's a 32 county sport with a lot of people players 
professional, amateur and fans and ordinary just Joe Soaps who want to watch the games, who want to watch Ireland play, um, they can't do that on a terrestrial channel up north because Orsi are forced to block the signal. That's a really strange circumstance in which to find ourselves. It's something that, hand on heart, had not struck home to me when the deal was announced. And it was only when I was researching that piece on the Six Nations broadcasting that it came to light for me. And it just seems, it seems odd. It seems an inequality in the game when you look at people trying to support a team that is based around a 32-county principle. There's political forces that have been uh, ignored, overlooked when it comes to sport. People from both sides standing together in a pitch when there wasn't a common anthem. We now have two songs that are sung before games in a bid to bridge some of that gap. And it's unfortunate that we are in a situation where the ability to see that gap being bridged is now unequal. But in a sense, we are where we are. To take a slightly um, different take on this, it takes money to run rugby entities in the modern world. And when you're competing against hugely cash-rich clubs in France, you need money to, take, to hold on to players. And the way the system is set up in Ireland, for example, is that international rugby is essentially the lifeblood of the game. It's a huge, huge percentage of the IRFU's coffers are filled by international rugby and everything that goes along with that. So when you see a Jonathan Sexton coming home and you see a Sean O'Brien staying and a Jamie Heaslip persuaded to stay, maybe it's not a, a penny for penny match, but at least they have to be in the ballpark where you can say, right, here's this much money and all this goodwill, but there's still a lot of money on the table as well. Um, that's important because these guys, I think, I, I couldn't, I certainly couldn't say, look, you've got a really short career, please stay, please stay, please stay. Because once the guy's not playing anymore, well, it's what have you done for me lately? And it's a short career. And a lot of players, they're not lucky enough to play for a long time. So I don't think anyone should begrudge them for trying to get the best thing for them and their family. But that just means it's a complicated decision, both in terms of the IRFU and then how the IRFU feeds into something like the Six Nations and the deal that they look to sign. Because all of these factors come into it. So that's Otherkin. Otherkin. That is the band that has been playing during this podcast so far and will play us out at the end. Um, this is something new that we're doing because I was getting a little too tired a little too quickly of that, you know, Eastern chime stuff that was happening in early episodes. And so it's ditched, it's gone. And instead, the podcast is a platform. So if you make music, if you know someone who makes music, if you promote music, then send me a link where I can listen to it send me a link where I can download it. Let me know that I can legally use it on the podcast and I will play it. I'm not particularly, you know, I don't really care about genre. I'd prefer it to be Irish, but I don't really care. If it's new, it's good. Let's hear it. And and I'll put it out there. So that was Other Kin. That was their new single called II. They're playing the Grand Social on April 2nd to launch that signal, a single. And they are on Twitter at Otherkin. Okay. So well done, lads. They were first in they, on the show.
Before we go a little story, there used to be a podcast called Up and In. And the people who did that podcast were Kevin Goldstein, who now works for Major League Baseball's Houston Astros, and Jason Parks, who now works for the Chicago Cubs. And to round off every one of those long, rambling, but brilliant episodes, they had a segment called What Are You Drinking? And this week, I contacted Kevin and I said, Kevin, can I use that? Can I have your blessing to use that part of your podcast, that late, great podcast in mine? And he said, yes. So thank you, Kevin. This is What Are You Drinking? And the first one tonight, because it happens to be the one that I picked up on the way home before I started editing this, is Guinness West Indies Porter. It's, um, I suppose, to be cynical, it's just Guinness trying to say, well, there's a lot of craft beer stuff going on that's got involved because they've released two of them, uh, Guinness West Indies Porter and Guinness Dublin Porter. One is weak, one is strong. And this is the strong one. It's 6%. So what's it like? It's a stronger version of the Guinness that you get in a pint bottle which in a really good pub you get asked if you want it off the shelf or from the fridge. And and those bubs are becoming ever fewer and we should, if you see them, thank the barman and say thank you, I will tell all my friends because that's the kind of question you want to be asked to show you in a place that cares about their beer. So this is a cross, I think, between uh, the Guinness that you get in that pint bottle and the Guinness Extra, which is that really syrupy, strong stuff, the Guinness Export. And... It's not bad. I've had the Dublin version, and that's not bad either. But then I like Guinness, and I like bottle Guinness. This is a little stronger. It's something that you would drink. If you just want one, maximum two bottles, I would say, of an evening, you just want something strong, a lot of flavor. You sip it, or you pour it into a small glass. You drink it bit by bit. You enjoy it. You are not slamming this back as part of a six-pack with your mates. It's not what this is for. So cynicism aside, well done, Guinness. I could see myself drinking this again. I hope you keep it on the shelves. And it's not one of these things like, you know, toucan brew that was brought out and then whisked away. And then we feel like fools for buying into the, the campaign and whatever the hype about trying it. So let's keep it. That's been What Are You Drinking? This has been the Andy McGeady podcast, the first one in a while. The next one will not be as far away. We have talked about rooking. We've talked about George North and concussions. We have talked about Six Nations viewing figures, and we've even had some music. So that's it. We'll talk again. <laughs> <laughs>